This is a Jewish TV channel presentation. Welcome to Talking Point, where controversial subjects are brought into sharp focus. Conversations with JTVC show host Laura Kessler comes up next. Good evening, and welcome to Talking Point. I'm Laura Kessler. Jewish trauma and PTSD are at epic historic rates, not just in Israel, but worldwide. Young Jewish people are suicidal at higher rates. Holocaust survivors who lost their parents and grandparents have now lost children and grandchildren to Hamas terrorism. People have lost entire friendship groups to a global mass movement that sanitizes and glorifies anti-Semitism, violent rapes of Jewish women, and the destruction of the only safe land Jews have ever known or could rely on when the rest of the world was happy to look away. Week after week, I see someone in my social media feed publicly ask their community for help because they're literally feeling suicidal. And it's even worse for our kids who've been on the front lines of a growing anti-Semitism epidemic for years, way before October 7th, which really was a flashpoint in the diaspora. Jewish students are no longer welcome in many extracurricular groups and they face hostility and intimidation from fellow classmates and even teachers, including the threat of physical violence on a regular basis. Some Jews are now simply hiding their identity at school and at work and even the doctor's office, which doesn't feel terribly different than hiding in a closet in Amsterdam or Germany. These are deeply traumatic times for anyone who has a meaningful tie to Judaism. If you have relatives or friends who are Jewish, I urge you to reach out to them during this crisis. And if you are Jewish and no one is reaching out to you, I urge you to reach out to each other. You're not alone, and you don't have to deal with all of this on your own. Much like the stages of grief, there are different stages of grieving when it comes to the intricacies of intergenerational pain and betrayal of anti-Semitism, especially after October 7th. I know I'm seeing my own friends and activists in many different variations of shock, disbelief, anger, sadness, bargaining, and maybe just a few who have actually reached reconciliation on some point, but certainly not many. The gravity of this is so heavy, I felt it was urgent to reach out to clinical professionals to share their insights with our audience here on the Jewish TV channel. So the next couple episodes will be devoted specifically to Jewish trauma and mental health. And to start it all off, I've asked our friend Malka Shah, a clinically trained trauma expert, to help set the stage. We're going to talk about DARVO, gaslighting, collective scapegoating on a clinical and sociological level with a psychologist who's an expert among experts in the field of trauma, as well as Jewish trauma. Malka Shah is a licensed clinical social worker who's been a leader in the field of mental health and trauma for over 25 years. She's an expert whose work has taken her from the front lines of 9-11, working with the Red Cross and FEMA in the aftermath, to October 7th as an expert on Jewish trauma. And she's now training other therapists to respond to the phenomenal needs of our community across the world. In response to the events of October 7th and the ongoing situation, she helped co-found the Kesher Shalom Project, which seeks to foster healing, resilience, and understanding within our diverse Jewish community. 
Cheshire Shalom is led by experienced trauma specialists, and they've trained over 2,000 therapists globally. Their training equips therapists with vital tools to aid Jewish clients during the conflict. They cover trauma assessments, practical techniques, and understanding Jewish competency through a trauma-focused lens, as well as addressing intergenerational trauma and the pervasive impact of anti-Semitism. Kesher Shalom is going to be expanding its impact by offering specialized workshops and groups for non-clinical audiences as well, and we'll be discussing that much more in the future. But for now, we're honored to have Malka here with us today. Welcome, Malka. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here tonight. Well, we're happy to have you here, too. I wanted to start, can you tell us a little about your background and how you came to be an expert in Jewish trauma in particular? Thank you so much. So, as you mentioned, I've been in the field of mental health for over 25 years, and one of the jump starts into my experience was when I was living in New York City on 9-11. I was there on the day of 9-11 and started working with FEMA and Red Cross helping to debrief the first responders and first responders and other people part um, that were involved with 9-11. And for those weeks, and then after that, uh, as a part of one of my jobs, I also did some work with Project Liberty. But in addition to that, as a social work student, I worked in domestic violence. I worked with kids in foster care. Trauma has been something that's been part of my work from the, from the very beginning. It's just that the field of trauma has definitely changed. Uh, in my individual work, I also do a lot of what's called EMDR work. But Jewish trauma has a little bit of a different twist. So Jewish trauma is really putting my knowledge of being a Jewish person, which I've been my whole life, and my, under- and my Jewish education and combining it with my expertise in trauma so that we can really help support the Jewish community in these difficult times. So what similarities do you see between the work you did after 9-11 and what you've been dealing with now after October 7th? That's a really excellent question. So the similarities in terms of treatment and how we work through it with the clients that are experiencing it are very similar. But as I said, in the 20-something years, our understanding of how trauma works and how trauma is passed in the body is very different. But the main difference that I could tell you that I've experienced is October 7th was the most devastating experience that I've had in my lifetime. And I was actually in New York City in 9-11, and I was not in Israel on 10-7. Because to me, the biggest difference is in New York City on 9-11, the aftermath was amazing. Everybody came to support the New Yorkers. There was so much support, there was so much love, and there was so much unity. But after 10-7, the world went Mm -hmm. silent, and then they started pointing the fingers at us. And not only did we not get support, we got blamed. People celebrated the atrocities that happened on 10-7, and people started blaming the Jews. So on top of this trauma, we now have what I would call like a mass level, what I call macro gaslighting, you know, coming from social media, the universities, the press, and it's really everywhere. And it's really, it's, it's, it's devastating to not only myself, but probably every Jewish person that I know. Macro gaslighting, that is such a good 
term. I'm going to use that like all the time from now on. It's, it, and that's exactly what it is. It's just like, you know, we all know you don't blame the victim. It, it, I saw a meme that said, what was Israel wearing? You know, it, it, it's, it's true. New York got so much love, so much love. Uh, Israel, not so much. It's, it's very painful. Um, let's go to the basics. Define trauma. What is communal trauma versus intergenerational trauma? Because, I mean, before now, when you talked about Jewish trauma, it was mostly about Holocaust trauma and, and being passed down to second generation, and I know you deal with some of that too. So what's the difference between communal trauma and intergenerational? Those are excellent questions, but I want to first just define trauma, the word trauma itself, because I think that there's so much pop psychology out there. So trauma is any situation that leaves you feeling overwhelmed, unable to establish control, unsafe, or isolated. It's how we perceive that situation. And when that, when that is perceived, there's like a flip that goes in our brain. And it's that flight or fight response because we are, we are hardwired for self-preservation. And when that self-preservation is triggered, that's where trauma is formed. That's why you and I could be in the same exact car accident and both of us have different reactions. So now that we understand what trauma is, we have to understand what's going on right now. And what's going on right now is what we're calling an active trauma because the trauma is ongoing versus a past trauma. And that's why my experience is a little bit different than other trauma specialists because normally when you walk into a psychotherapist's office, we're talking about a trauma that, that, that happened in the past, but this is an ongoing trauma. We've been labeling what's going on as a communal trauma. What happened in 9-11, they were labeling a collective trauma because it was a large group, but a communal trauma is when it's really targeted at a specific group of people. So now we have specific groups of people that this trauma is being targeted at. Then you have this particular people, which is Jews, that have suffered what's called intergenerational trauma. And you're correct in that most of the research about intergenerational trauma is Holocaust-specific, but it doesn't have to be Holocaust-specific. Because as you and I both know, the history of persecution and slavery and anti-Semitism and Jew hatred, this goes back 3,000 years. And I've actually met and interviewed people who have experienced intergenerational trauma in terms of the European programs and other parts of it. But the basic definition of intergenerational trauma occurs when an individual's trauma affects subsequent generations, even though those generations didn't have direct exposure. And then those generations may have specific themes. So, for example, Jewish intergenerational trauma has the themes and the cognitive messages of fear, anxiety, guilt, and paranoia. And then when you add all of this up together, the the definition of Jewish trauma is this intergenerational trauma plus dealing with the effects of anti-Semitism plus whatever an individual's personal trauma may or may not be plus the current communal trauma of October 7th and all the recent events. All this equals Jewish trauma, which really equals a sense of safety and worldview being turned upside down and inside out. And it, le- it can really lead people to questioning everything and making you feel like you're, you're shook to the core. So it's all these different traumas together, and that's what really we talk about when we talk about the Jewish trauma experience. 
that covers a lot, and yet it's only the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? I mean, it's it's just a lot. And can you talk a little bit about epigenetics and what we've learned in the last several years? Sure. So let me let me take a step back with that. That's that's actually an excellent question. So there is now a lot of research in terms of the biology with the intergenerational trauma, like you mentioned, with the epigenetics about how the DNA and the transmission can be passed on from one generation to the next. Studies have suggested that trauma-related epigenetic markers could be inherited and contributed to the descendants. But what we do know is that it can affect your stress response system, so it can cause changes in the cortisol levels and sensitivities. There's um, neurobiological markers on the brain and the functioning. And, you know, it's not very clear how much is, you know, what is passed down exactly, but what we are clear of is the developing fetus during pregnancy carries, a female developing fetus carries eggs. And if you're in, if those eggs are inside a mother who's experiencing the trauma, that trauma trauma experience and impact can be then passed on to the child. But that's just the, the epigenetics. What we do know for a fact is the environmental factors. So while the science is kind of hard for people to really put their minds around, we can relate to the impact on the parent-child relationship. Because if you have a parent who's survived trauma, they and they haven't actually healed from it or seek treatment, they could be emotionally distant and it can affect their the way that they parent their child. There can be communication challenges, survivor guilt. And again, this is where we talk about, you know, the Jewish stereotypes, but that really can lead into a sense of being overprotective and on high anxiety, that's that we've seen in in children of Holocaust survivors, overprotective parents, you know, and it could also impact having an extreme parenting style, either too authoritarian or too permissive. All of these things lead to the legacy of trauma, and obviously, we all know that we are impacted by how we were brought up and our, you know, our parent infant, our parent child, our initial bond with our caregiver really can impact our personality development. So if our main caregiver has experienced trauma and that caregiver has some deficiencies because they have trauma that was not reconciled, it's going to pass down to the child and it just goes around and around in a cycle unless Mm -hmm. there's some kind of treatment or some intervention. And this is so important and I'm so glad you laid it out by explaining communal trauma being specific versus intergenerational, which it sounds like they can overlap. Because, I mean, I know, I know 65-year-old children of Holocaust survivors who talk about their parents being challenging, you know, growing up. And really, it was untreated PTSD back in those days. But I also have friends in Israel with young children. And I've heard we're now on the second generation of children in Israel who are are dealing with a lot of trauma just from the constant rockets. This is before 107. Um just constant rockets. So it's it's really all around we are facing an epidemic of Jewish trauma and the mental health issues really are something to be concerned about. Can can you tell us what are the effects of trauma? What to look out for when someone is experiencing active trauma and what is the difference between active trauma and just regular trauma, I guess? 
well, I don't know if there's a regular trauma, um, but, you know, you know, when we talk about acute trauma, acute trauma is something that happened recently, but active is ongoing. So it's ongoing. We don't know. We're still, every day I think about the hostages. I don't know about you. They're in my heart. Every day oh, yeah. I look at the news and I want to, and I want to know what's going on with my friends and family in Israel. Every day I wonder what's going to happen. Every day, what's going to happen in Congress? Are we going to see another round of depending on the context? What, you know, so this trauma is ongoing. So, you know, what we need to do is really just check in with people. How are they doing with their basic needs? How is their sleeping? How is their eating? How are they able to function in their activities of daily living? Are they in charge of small children and they need help? Are they currently in fight or fight? So some of the things I tell therapists to look out for in our clients is, we might see some hyper or hypo arousal. We might see denial. We might, might see the inability to complete those activities of daily living, the regular things that we have to do on a day-to-day basis. Difficulties in thinking clearly, fatigue, sleep deprivation, intrusive thoughts, delusional thinking, dissociation. And the main thing that we have to really look at with active trauma uh, is that there's a potential trigger for this, you know, potential trigger for a relapse. So somebody who might have had addictions or eating disorders or cutting in the past, active trauma acts as a magnifying glass. I used to say this during COVID. So during COVID, you know, people would say all these things happened because of COVID. And I always said, no, it acted like a magnifying glass because what was already under the surface is coming out. And that's where, I, you know, I want to just take a step back. I mentioned talk about COVID in terms of people talk about collective trauma. We all experienced collective trauma in, in COVID, and New York and 9-11 was a collective trauma. But communal trauma, again, is when it's targeted at a specific group of people. And that's why this is really being labeled a communal trauma right now. But that's the laundry list of things to really look at when somebody, you know, if you're experiencing these things, most people don't walk around saying, hi, I think I have trauma. They say I have a difficulty in concentration. You know, the college kids are reporting, you know, struggling with their academics, lower GPA averages, feeling stressed out, feeling overwhelmed. Those are really can be trauma related. And that's what's really important. People aren't going to come out and say, oh, I have trauma. I must be a specialist. They're going to just talk about some of these symptoms and not understand that it really is correlated with the trauma that they're experiencing. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up COVID because we, I think we still have the residual effects of that in a lot of ways. And I worry a lot about our kids. Uh, our kids are still, they've been so interrupted already by COVID, the young ones especially. And now things are anything but normal. Um, are there special symptoms to look out for in children? Well, children aren't going to be able to express themselves in the same way as adults, right? So, you know, we again, you want to look at differences in eating and sleeping. Kids are more likely to act out behaviorally. And, you know, this is a little bit of a longer and harder conversation because we really have to look at the different developmental stages. But you may see a regression in maturity and at the level of where they're supposed to be. It's very important, and one of my colleagues in Kesher Show and Projects really does do a lot of work with talking to children about anti-Semitism, and she's a licensed marriage and family um, therapist. Her name is Lisa Mustard, 
and she's she's an amazing and I feel very honored to work with her. And that's really one of her areas of specialties. But we have to remember the kids are, if you think that you are being affected, then your kids are definitely being affected. And they're being affected both by themselves and when their caregiver is being infected, they are. So one of the things that Lisa talks about that I 100% agree with is the most important thing for kids is for you to take care of yourself. Just like when you go on an airplane and the steward is used to, at least in my day now, the video used to say, you must put on the oxygen mask first because you cannot take care of somebody else unless you're taking care of yourself. So the most important thing is that caregivers have to have these feel supported and feel grounded and have to feel like their emotions are regulated. And then they're going to be in a place to talk to their children and be able to support their children. But as we talk about older kids, teenagers and so forth, we have to be able to have the conversations be open. We have to have a safe space where kids can come and talk to us about their experiences and how they feel. Laura, if you don't mind, yeah. I'd love to share with the audience what my 10-year-old said to me when I, told, when I was speaking to my 10-year-olds about anti-Semitism. Sure, sure. So I asked him, I said, you know, what do you think about what's going on? Because I know they're talking about it in the school. And he said, he goes, well, I think they're jealous. I think they're jealous of us. And I said, oh. And I was like, do you, does that make you upset? Because, you know, my kids walk around with openly with yarmulkes and my boys wear sit So I asked them, does it make you want to take off your yarmulke? You know, are you, are you worried? And he said, no, it makes me want to be more Jewisher. <laughs> so he came from a place of, I know, isn't that the cutest? He's so cute. That's he wanted sweet. to be more, he felt even more proud. He said, no, why should I hide? You know, so, but again, it depends on the community. Yeah. It depends where you are. Other people. The community and the, and the parents too. You know, I mean, you're instilling a strong Jewish identity. It's, that that definitely will help. It, I think it, it's likely probably harder for the people that don't have a Jewish identity and are still getting anti-Semitism, that's a different level. But that, that's cute. Jewisher. <laughs> um, I know. I think that's adorable. But I do worry that there's people out there that are internalizing the anti-Semitic messages. And that's a real problem that we need to address on a global level as well. Well, and I, I want to talk about that. And, I, you know, we're going to have you on more than once. But um, I want to, before we get into Kesher Shalom, Please explain what DARVO is and how it applies to anti-Semitism, the gaslighting, and the impact on Jews. Because this is, I mean, I know a lot of people talk about it, but, you know, it's it's the formula. And so I'm going to let you explain what, what all of that is. Okay. So the basic definition of DARVA is deny, attack, reverse, victim, and offender. And everyone's like, well, what does that mean? So let me just kind of break that down for everyone. So... I was one of the first people, or Kesher Shalom Projects was one of the first to come out and say this is macro gaslighting. That was my first in that, you know, reaction in the early weeks in October. And what is a gaslighter? And what is, and what is somebody who is um, an abuser? Because that is, uh, you know, outside of the work that we're talking about here, this is one of my areas of expertise in my personal private practice. So an abuser is somebody who really manipulates and tries to make the other person look like the crazy person or tries to make them look like the bad guy. So the first thing they'll do is they'll deny it. And then when the denying doesn't work, so denying could look at like, well, you're lying, that's not true. Denying could look like, 
they deny that they actually did this. And as you see, there's people who are denying the atrocities on October 7th, just as there's people denying that the Holocaust actually happened. And then what they try and do is they reverse the victim and the offender. So instead, and they will often play the victim and make the other person the offender. And we see that. They're trying to make Israel the bad guy. They're trying to make Zionism into something that it really isn't. And it's it's a real, you know, it's a real way of abusing someone, but now it's happening to a whole people on a communal level where they're really trying to make, you know, when they when people are shouting for a ceasefire, they forget that there was a ceasefire on October 6th. And there was another ceasefire and Hamas broke the ceasefire. And yeah. they're still shouting for another ceasefire, but but it's not true. Israel's really defending herself and trying to rescue the hostages. So who's the offender and who's the victim? And playing games and denying and trying to recreate the history, this is always what we usually typically call narcissistic abuse. So now it's happening on a macro level. It's happening in the media. It's happening on the, what's happening on social media. It's very disheartening. And it really could be other little levels of trauma building up on top of the trauma for people who are experiencing this and watching this as they're scrolling through their phones. So can you just go back a little slowly over DARVO and what each letter stands for? Sure. Deny. So they would deny the, the, the actual abuse or deny what actually happened. And then when that deny doesn't work, they attack. So they attack the actual victim. And reverse is where they reverse the roles of victim and offender. So they will make themselves look like the the victim, and they will make the person who's actually the victim look like, quote, unquote, the bad guy. So that's really where the impact is, right? So, you know, and how and what is that like for people as they're scrolling through their phones, as they're looking through things? I do want to talk a little bit about something that we talk about in our trainings and in our workshops is we call it unplug to replug. And we are, as mental health professionals, really recommending that people take time away. I know I'm on social media with you, that we take some time away from social media and that we just take some time away from looking at everything. Generally, we recommend at least five hours a week where we could just put our phones down, put the media down, and just re- really be able to clear our heads and really tune into our family, tune into our hobbies, read a, you know, a fictional book, and just kind of relax and let our minds just take a break from it. Absolutely. Good advice year-round, no matter what. Um, so let's talk about Kesher Shalom and how did it come to be? And also, what kind of trainings do you offer specifically? So Kesher meaning connections and Shalom meaning peace. That's really what we're saying, what we're out for, for Kesher Shalom projects. And it's I call it the the project that I never planned for, that I didn't know what was going to happen, and it just sort of sort of fell into it. So based on the unique experience and my what I call my unfortunate skill set, because you don't really want me to have to use the large scale trauma skill set that I have with nine eleven. I was asked on a WhatsApp therapist WhatsApp group if I would be open to doing a Zoom because this is a WhatsApp group of Jewish therapists right after 10-7, and they didn't know what to do, and they didn't know how to respond, and they had their own reactions. So I wrote back, sure, I'll do a Zoom. Is there anybody else who wants to do it with me? And a few other therapists jumped in, 
And it really started out voluntarily, and we really didn't understand the enormity of it. We thought maybe 30, 40 people would show up on the Zoom, and it was going to be a one and done. And in fact, what happened was the first Zoom maxed out of whatever the Zoom capacity, 300 people, and so we were asked to do it again, max out again and again. And so the first several versions of the training were not as formalized with a slideshow, presentation, et cetera, but they were really kind of coming from the heart and they were really just creating a safe space to talk about, you know, all the different feelings, the counter-transference, giving over some basic skills to therapists on how to deal with their, how to deal with their clients in active trauma and how to deal with these emotions while they're going alongside their clients. So that was the first step. And then we realized that we can't continue 100% to just do this voluntarily. And we started getting, I don't even know how many um, responses from non-Jewish therapists that they wanted to be on the training. So one of the other therapists came up with the idea of let's do continuing ed courses, and which usually take a, lot, a long time to be approved. And I do believe this is one of the small miracles is that we got it turned around and approved for CU accreditation. And so we developed a curriculum pretty fast where we added a Jewish cultural competency piece, which does not really exist so much on the main mental health platforms. We added a piece of giving practical skills, doing some hands-on grounding techniques, and talking about trauma. So this piece of that original training has evolved, and we have many other people on the team. We have consulted with the leaders in intergenerational trauma, We've consulted with a history professor. We've consulted with many other people so that the new version is really the full Jewish trauma experience and helping people build resilience. And, you know, and with the building resilience, I have now developed sort of a system. We're calling it the guard system, which is a more comprehensive system on treating trauma that incorporates all of the methodologies and modalities that exist, but it's kind of in a package deal that's easier to maintain and retain for clients and for therapists as well. So that's how the trainings evolved. And then from there, we've been invited to different synagogues and Jewish venues, invited onto different podcasts, and we're really trying to get the messages out there. So that's where it really started from the training. And it's not just training therapists now, it's really training educational professionals, rabbis, different leaders, healthcare professionals. And now we are moving into a different phase where we would like to start offering direct services. So that began with doing some Facebook Lives, and we started a YouTube channel to put some information out there and make it accessible to the community. But we are really hoping to start Jewish parenting groups. We're hoping to join up with other organizations and do some work on college campuses, corporations that have Jewish affinity groups. We'd love to, you know, we have these trainings and we're ready to go in and help create safe spaces where either Jewish employees or college students, wherever the space may be, you know, where we can start a dialogue, where we can start a dialogue of between the non-Jews and the Jews and really create some peace and some connections and some understanding and really, that dialogue has to start with some mutual respect. So, you know, we are open to, you know, whatever organizations want to partner up with us. And 
we wanted to, you know, provide all the different services to really support the Jewish community in this in this trying times. I think it's wonderful that you have managed to get it where people can get their CEU credit in such a short time. I imagine that's that's a pretty big deal. And um, I know it's a little outside of your wheelhouse, but maybe not for long. People who have been listening to my show all year long, we've been talking about what do we do with DEI? There was a big debate for a long time about do you salvage it? Do you change it? A lot of people say, nope, get rid of it entirely. But there's a third option that I don't think people have considered enough, which is that through psychologists doing trauma and sensitivity training, I'm paraphrasing it, you would probably word it differently, but by going after it that way, that actually starts at the source. And that's incredibly important because when we look at anti-Semitism, in education and college campuses, I divide it into two parts. There's community, the climate, which we hear a lot about, about intimidation, but then there's also curriculum and things like that and where it comes from. So I think that there's tremendous potential to add more information about Jewish trauma awareness, all of these things, and that trickles down then from academia into the corporate world and other places. Um, And so I'm not going to put you on the spot about all of that right now, but I do want to ask you, what do you think is the role of organizations such as the APA, the AMA? You know, it, it hurts a lot when you see the governing bodies of a lot of these things, teachers unions and the Archaeology Association. I mean, there's so many people that I don't even know why they're doing statements that are about the Middle East. It's out of their wheelhouse. But what is the role of these organizations, in your view? They're training the next generation of doctors, therapists, all of these things. What do you hope to see with all of this? Well, it's very, it's very disheartening. Um, you know, so as a licensed clinical social worker, I'm part of the, I fall under the NASW, the National Association for Social Work, and they've been silent, completely silent. I, they hadn't put out a statement either way. So, but the things that we have seen in the field of mental health is really disheartening. And it's really, it, it breaks my heart personally, because we're supposed to be here to provide warmth and empathy. And, you know, what's happening now is the the therapy room is no longer safe. We're getting hundreds of messages from therapists saying that clients are making anti-Semitic remarks to them. Clients are dropping them for being Jewish. I'm getting hundreds, maybe more messages. Well, not me personally, but Kesher Shalom Projects, hundreds, maybe thousand messages from clients. They're afraid to go to a therapist. What if they had therapists dismissing their views, not giving them validation for their anti-Semitic experiences? One of the biggest problems is that Jews are often not given a seat at the minority table. Despite the actual statistics, we are 2.2% in America and we're 0.02% of the entire world. And somehow we are still not considered a minority. And we're not given the privileges, we're not given any of the graces of a minority, and we're not considered a protected class. And we're definitely not a protected class in the DEI. 
So there's just so many things to be spoken about, but I can only talk about my experience and my experiences in the therapy rooms and what other therapists are bringing to us. And I can talk about the different online platforms that therapists go to. Laura, you would be surprised that when I started posting about the trainings, I got attacked on my professional page on Facebook with slammed with all these anti-Semitic comments. All I was doing was providing a training on supporting Jewish clients. Where every other minority group has trainings on cultural competencies and every other, whether it's, you know, LGBT, BIPOC, all the other ones. But the second we want to support Jewish clients, people are, they call it, they said I'm discriminatory. How can you? We're very nasty comments. So it's it's a very disheartening piece. Um, so I think number one is there has to be recognition that Jews are a marginalized population. There is this myth that we're all somehow privileged or controlling the world, and it's it's completely not true. You know the media is actually against us. So we need to kind of break down what the, some of these myths are. We need to talk about. Why are, why are, what are the things that are often are causing Jew hatred? What are these myths? And what, what, what's true and what's not really true? That's number one. And, you know, in these trainings that we've been doing is we start at the end, we open up a dialogue with the non-Jewish therapist and the Jewish therapist, and we talk about it. And so many times people will say to us, I was not aware of the level of persecution against the Jews. Or this part I was not aware of. Thank you. And, and But again, the people that really need the training the most are not signing up for the trainings, and you and I both know that. But, yeah. I'm sad to hear that even therapists in their own rooms are experiencing anti-Semitism from the clients. That's just, wow. No, and no, the therapist doesn't deserve to be abused while they're doing their work. So it's, it's very upsetting. It's a very upsetting situation. Um, but I like what you said about bringing therapists in to maybe be the bridge and the gap because when we come in to do trainings, I'm not there to be political and I'm not there to be a religious leader. I'm there coming from a trauma perspective and giving it all over from a trauma perspective. And maybe that's the gap because if we're here, you know, we're supposed to want to foster a warm, inclusive environment that everybody can thrive in. And I think all professionals have to ask themselves, what is my responsibility? What is my ethical and moral responsibility to our Jewish clients? And if you're on campuses to our Jewish students, what is our, and where is our moral compass? And I want to say the moral compass is that we need to stress the importance of promoting education, awareness. We need to foster a culture of tolerance and inclusivity. And somehow Jews are not included in that conversation. And I don't understand why the rights and the well-being of our Jewish clients, our Jewish students, our Jewish employees, how come their rights, it's okay to trample on them, but everybody else's isn't. We have to be able to work as a team to combat prejudice. And it really will require a lot of effort from individuals, communities, and institutions. Everyone has to work together as a team. But when we come from it, we're coming from the trauma perspective of it. You know, I still believe that everyone is good, and I want to believe in the goodness of people. So when people really understand the impact 
I don't think anybody really wants to be the cause of somebody else's trauma. Yeah, and that is so important. And for people that want to understand deeper how we got to this point where somehow Jews are not getting minority protections, I would tell you to listen to some of the past episodes of the show, especially with with David Bernstein, the author of Woke Anti-Semitism, and Dara Horn, and, and many of the professors from earlier in the year. But, you know, the reason I'm so committed to doing this Jewish mental health series is I think besides the fact that I know a lot of people personally that, that need it, um, I think you guys, the psychologists, are could very well be the secret sauce to helping to bridge the gap in this problem. You're not rabbis. You're not administrators. You know, you're not, you're not, you're, you're in your own category where you've broken it down. You're not activists. You've just broken it down to the basic humanitarian category of trauma. And that's what it comes down to is like, I've heard some of our, uh, I call them our interface peace warriors, the, the, the non-Jews who are just superstars fighting anti-Semitism sometimes more articulate than we are even at doing so effectively. You know, you ask them, why do you do it? And a lot of them will say, because I know the difference between right and wrong. They understand the humanitarian angle, and that's the luxury that the psychologists and the social workers are leading with just that. And really, that's enough. That's enough to do it. You don't need all the rest. So, um, so important. I have an audience question that was pre-submitted for you. Um, Karen asked, I might paraphrase a little, what suggestions for Jews do you have who, when we're seeing an increasing number of our friends post anti-Israel stories on social media, some of these are people who have not posted much about Israel or the topic previously, but they're now going to anti-Israel protests. They seem to assume everybody supports them. Should I still be friends with them? Should I try to reason with them? Should I just keep quiet? Should I argue? I'm just so confused. And um, I know a lot of people are, are talking about they've lost entire friend groups. What advice could you give? I think a lot of people are in this, this situation. I mean, there's a betrayal piece, right? There's a betrayal. Who could we trust? How do, you know, and, you know, we have to look over our shoulders. Who can we trust? And that's, that also goes into our intergenerational trauma piece. You know, it really goes back to what was your relationship with them and what do you think you're going to get out of it? We have a, we have a Jewish saying and it's called, we have a Jewish thing called tochachad. I think, I hope I pronounced it right in, in Hebrew. So tochachad is when you rebuke somebody, but it really breaks down to trying to help somebody and you can't give tochachad to somebody who really can't hear it. So the first thing you need to do is make an assessment. Are they even open to having a dialogue with you? Because if they're going to come from, a, you know, a place of screaming profanities, screaming antifada, river to the sea, it, 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 may, it might be somebody that you need to walk away with. But so first of all, we have to assess where that person is and do they look like they're grounded and open and ready to receive. Because somebody who's highly charged, not regulated, they're not going to hear our message anyway. So that's step one. Step two is you need to maintain your level of integrity. Because the second other piece that's also disheartening is when I've seen other Jewish people respond and they're they're not, we want to go higher. We don't want to be lower. We want to respond with professionalism and integrity. 
especially online. Things don't disappear ever online. So that's number one is we want to speak from only if you can speak from a calm and rational place. If you can't, then you, but you should just take some time out. So it really depends on the context. I shouldn't say depends on the context. But it really, it really has to depend on your really, you know, that's terrible. Sorry. I hope you cut that part out. It really no, depends okay. on the relationship that you have with a particular person. What do you know about them? So I, for one, stopped arguing with people online. It's just a waste of my time. I'd rather put my energy into something more productive where I can actually make a change and actually make a difference. But the most important thing is if you feel hurt, or attacked, you need to set boundaries and you need to set boundaries, protect your own mental health and go to the people that are your real friends, go to the people that are there for you. And those people are not the people that are going to be writing all these negative things online. They're not going to be, you know, so go to the people that can support you and, and protect yourself. And if if that means setting boundaries, you're going to set boundaries. Well, it's an era of strange bedfellows. I think people are opening up to receiving support from uh, different factions of people that maybe they previously wrote off, and they're finding they're not getting support from people that they previously supported a lot, and, and yeah, that tremendous betrayal. Um, just a basic question. When should someone seek out a mental health professional? That's an excellent question. So we, you know, we're all we're all experiencing things. So we talk about everything in terms of intensity, duration, and frequency. So it really depends on the intensity of of the different symptoms that we spoke about earlier, the frequency that they're happening, and intensity is only something you can measure, right? So Laura, you, as I said, you and I could be doing the same thing, but for me, on a scale from one to ten, it's a nine in intensity. And for you, it's a four or vice versa. So when we look at it on those measures, we really talk about how is it impacting our everyday being, our everyday relationships, our ability to work or function, our ability to be in school if we're in college, our ability to parent if we have small children at home. If it's really impeding our functioning, if we're having intrusive thoughts, if we're feeling like we're losing our concentration, it's not a bad idea to check in with a mental health professional. It's really not a bad idea. It's something that everyone should check in with. There's actually, if you don't mind, one of the organizations that we're in partnership with is OKClarity.com. And OKClarity is specifically a directory for Jewish, for people who are either Jewish allies or Jewish therapists. So the Jewish community has a place to go for their mental health professionals, of people who are safe and supportive of what's going on. So while I would love to take everybody as a client, my, you know, my practice is, you know, everybody's individual practice, but they could definitely go to OK Clarity. You could reach out to me on malkashaw.com. But those are really the things. It's like, is it really impeding? Are you having a hard time sleeping? Are you having a hard time eating or overeating? When it's really changing yeah. our lifestyle, that's a time to, you know, and I want to just say, Reaching out to a mental health professional is a sense of strength. I know, especially we have a lot of Jewish pride or our own little mishigas about reaching out for help. But it's really a sense of, you know, it's a really sense of humility and strength to reach out and say, hey, I need help on this. And nobody's perfect. And everybody could use therapy at some point in time. Well said. Well said. And 
Now, as we come to a close, what would you like our audience to do? You know, any quick tips on coping skills? And can you give them the Kesher Shalom website again? Absolutely. So that actually both go hand in hand. So if you go on our Kesher Shalom website, that's www.kesher, K-E-S-H-E-R, Shalom, S-H-A-L-O-M.com, and you sign up for our newsletter, you automatically get you automatically will get the free private podcast that actually has all each of our therapists, myself included, walk people through a specific grounding technique or meditation. And these are things that you can do at home if you're just feeling a little bit of stress or anxiety. These are specific things that we had put together just to help you. We also started a YouTube channel, a Kesher Shalom Project YouTube channel that will have different educational material posted. It will have the different Facebook Lives or podcasts that we've been on. It's all going to be on the YouTube channel. But we really encourage people to reach out to, to the website, join the mailing list so, so we can get the different newsletters. We are going to be launching the new, the new version of the training, Navigating Jewish Trauma and Building Resilience. We're going to be sending out trainings on the GUARD method, which is an all-encompassing method of treating and working at, and looking at trauma. And, you know, again, we're looking to partner up with other organizations so that we can come in and work together to help everybody. So thank you so much. And we're just, you know, Excellent. we're here. Yeah. And if you give us all of those links to things, we'll put it in the show notes so people can easily click through and get all of those resources to that you mentioned in your, your YouTube channel and all of that. Um, great. So we... um we like to do a lightning round at the end. It's a little bit more uplifting after all of this depressing stuff we're talking about. So you up for that? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Why are you proud to be a Jew? Why am I not proud to be a Jew? There's no reason to not be. It's, I love the Jewish holidays. I love learning Torah. I love the Jewish community. I love my Jewish friends. I am proud of our heritage. I'm proud of our customs. I'm proud of our holidays. I love everything. Who are your Jewish role models? My, the first thing that comes to mind is Golda Meir and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But um, they were both amazing Jewish women, strong, Jew, strong, independent Jewish women who accomplished the impossible. And I feel that Golda Meir, everything that she said in the 60s and 70s is extremely apropos for today's times. What concerns you most about the present moment in relation to the Jewish people? What concerns me is the Jews that are feeling isolated, the Jews that are feeling that they're going to, that they want to hide, the Jews that are feeling that they want to take down their mezuzahs. You know, I want I want people to feel pride in their heritage and in their culture. What makes you mad? What makes me mad is when people are ignorant, not educated, and they're out there spreading all these different lies about what's going on in Israel, about the Jewish people, about even what it means to be a Zionist. It's you know, it's the ignorance, it's the all or nothing you know, mentality today. I think it's very important that people really understand history, understand, and are really educated before they go and start posting things online. Yeah. 
For those who look up to you, what do you want them to remember? This is the hardest question. I think they, mm-hmm. I want people just to know, think of Malka as somebody who did something, I, that I wasn't passive, that, you know, I talk about Kesher Shalom as this is my trauma reaction, that I, I didn't sit still and I'm going to stand up and I'm going to fight for the Jewish people in the best way that I can. And finally, what's your outlook on the future? Are you hopeful? Very hopeful. When you look at our history, the word that describes the Jew is resilience. We have a long history of being resilient. We have gone through so much. All these great nations that tried to take us down, that tried genocide, that tried to enslave us, they are not around. All those, all of our enemies are no longer around, and we, and we are still standing. And the Jewish people will always be still standing. Malka Shah, I want to thank you for being with us today for all the work you and Kesher Shalom are doing to address the trauma and the mental health crisis after October 7th. I know you're you're going to be back on again. It's so needed and it's so appreciated, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. You're amazing, and the work that you're doing is also so important. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's it for this special edition of Talking Point on the Jewish TV channel. Our series on Jewish trauma and mental health will continue with Dr. Beth Romreimer, President of the American Jewish Psychologist, and Dr. Jeffrey Lichtman, Director of Student Mental Health Services at Turo University, both of them coming up in the coming weeks. Please subscribe to our podcast and also check out BIPAC News for Bipartisan Action Against Anti-Semitism on the Jewish TV channel. I'm Laura Kessler. See you next time.